Well, during the Easter of 2007, more than half a million eggs were hidden all around a golf course for 10,000 children to go and discover. You know, I think today millions of us will go out and we will look for hundreds of millions of flamboyantly colored eggs and in hopes that something just might be inside of them for us. I think it's perhaps one of the funniest and silliest traditions that our culture has. I mean, think about it for a second. Hard-boiled eggs dipped in dye, hidden in the yard for children to find so that they can then place them in a basket with the hopes that there's something inside of them that is a treat. So why is it you think that we hold on tight to this kind of silly tradition of our culture? What do you think it is that is so delightful about finding multicolored eggs, rainbow-colored eggs, in peculiar places? Well, you know, I found out that children aren't the only ones that love to go and find eggs and get on a hunt. Adults are now having egg hunts themselves. You can find in Monterey, California, you can have a champagne brunch on Pebble Beach Golf Course, and you can go out, and you too can go discover Easter eggs as an adult. But their eggs have a much different prize inside. There's 20s and 50s and $100 of bills that you can find. If you find the golden egg, you drive home in a new car. That's my kind of Easter egg hunt. (laughs) Some of you have already discovered that in the chair rack in front of you is a surprise waiting, uh, an Easter egg hunt of sorts. Some of you don't believe me, and some of you are too proud to even look right now to see that there's there. But let me tell you, a spouse will want you to look because inside is probably a peppermint patty, and that will help clear up the coffee breath that you've created for the last couple of hours. Now, there's no golden egg underneath your seat, but there is some candy. The golden egg, I guess, if you were to receive it from this place, you'd go home with a brand new, well, very used church van. (laughs) Maybe we should have put a golden egg underneath the seat. I don't know why the hunt for flamboyant colored Easter eggs is such a fun event for us. Well, it all take place probably, in the, if we haven't already, in some kind of hunt. But I think the discovery of a funny egg in a yard represents Easter quite perfectly. Something which was pagan can turn out to be uh, so holy. And he'd give us an illustration perfectly of what took place on that Easter morning. You want one of these? It's proof that the Reds fans can catch. (laughs) Do you remember at the tomb when the women came and they discovered that it was empty in the early morning? That there was no celebration that took place. Like we have sunrise service and we express our joy and our gratitude and we got all excited about it. Not that first Easter. That first Easter, the women came to the tomb and they saw strips of linen. And you remember Mary Magdalene ran back and she got John and Peter. And they came too and they they found the same thing. If you get in the book of John in the last chapter, you'll find that they had thought, I mean every single one of them had thought, that Jesus didn't rise from the dead but that his body was stolen And that's what they had believed over the course of the day. Did you know it wasn't until late in the day, into the nighttime of Resurrection Sunday, that the disciples finally came to full belief and said, truly, you are the Son of God who rose from the dead. It makes me wonder how much despair there was that day. Because the women just came to the tomb to anoint his body and to clear the stink of death with the spices. 
They all thought absolutely he was going to die. It makes me think that they just didn't understand that when Jesus stood before the temple and said, you tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days, that they actually thought Jesus was talking about the temple that took 46 years to rebuild. So they looked at Jesus and said, you're out of your mind. The temple took years to build. There's no way you can destroy it and then rebuild it in three days. But they didn't know that Jesus was talking about his body. They didn't understand that when Jesus said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. When we read the Easter story, we're talking to a a group of disciples that are in desperation. They don't know what the resurrection will mean to them. But friends, we're on the other side We see it from a different glance, and so I want to present to you some things that the Easter resurrection means to us. Number one, the resurrection means that we can be rescued. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that we can be rescued, not necessarily from our problems that God's going to take us out of our present problems and then put us into a new circumstance. No, what it means is that we can be rescued from the things that ultimately plague our life. And not PTA meetings and, and not church board meetings and, and not problems that we have with our finances. God didn't come to fix those things. Jesus came to rescue you from your sin. I think everybody in this room would agree that we have vulnerabilities, that we have chinks in our armor and that we have bruises which have gone deeper than flesh and blood. They've gone to our soul and we have past hangups which have held us back over a course of time. We have guilt and we have restrictions that we believe are placed on our life because of our circumstances that surround us. But Jesus came to rescue us. And Jesus came to set us free. You know, Jesus rescued me many years ago. He rescued me from anger and he rescued me from the cynicism that I have. He rescued me from the apathy that can easily be tempting in my life and the apathy, apathy towards suffering even in our world. Jesus rescued me from a hot temper and a loud mouth. I still have a little bit of a loud mouth. I've been rescued by Jesus, and the best part is, when I came to Jesus, he accepted me with exactly who I was, with all of those issues and all of those hang-ups, and then he turned me into a new creation. And friends, here's what I'm saying to you today. Jesus loves you just the way that you are right now, just the way that you are, but you come to him And he loves you so much that he is not willing to keep you the way you are. You see, he has something designed so much better for your life. You know, when God created us, God looked down upon creation, and he didn't just say it was good. God said it was very good. He is so pleased with his creation. Did you know that we're the only creation that is created in the image of God? Fish can't say that. Dogs and cats can't say that. Birds can't say that. The cosmos can't say that. Only humans can say that we've been created in the image of God. Did you know when Jesus had the teaching, when he said that God even knows the number of hairs on our head, that the hairs of our head are numbered, that that's God's way of saying that I know you better than you know yourself. I have a more intimate understanding of who you are down to your core better than you do. You see, God says, I know how many hairs are on your head. Do you know that? A few of you might, but, but not most of us don't. So it comes down to this. God loves you exactly how you are. He already knows everything about you. 
He knows the deepest, darkest secrets, the things you never tell your spouse, you never relay on to a personal friend. But God knows those things, and he says, you come to me, and I'll never push you away. And some believers, they wonder why it is that God is not so quick to come and take back his church. Uh, Some people call it the rapture. Others call it the second coming. And some of us say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. This world is spinning out of control. Few of us believers would say, man, the world's out of control. Wouldn't it be nice to have Jesus come back and take us out of here? Well, most of us say, yeah. So we say, why is God being so slow in this? But Peter has the answer. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord's not slow in keeping His promises, as some of us understand slowness. He's not slow in His return. Here's what God's up to right now. God is patient. Why? Why is God patient in His second coming? Because He wants everyone to turn from sin so that no one will be lost. Friends, the reason why... He is patient with us in his return is because he wants everyone, not just in this room, but to the global expansions to come and recognize that Jesus is the rescuer of our soul and only he alone can save. That's what the resurrection means. The resurrection also means that God is limitless. You know, I think so oftentimes we put God into our box and we think humanistically about who he is. And we limit God to our knowledge, and we limit God to our ability, but God is not limited to our ability. He's limitless. And the resurrection shows us that. Do you know every day we're making new discoveries about who we are as humans? Not just technological advancements when it comes to science, but we're learning more about who we are through medicine and through discovery of the human body. Do you know that we know about 99% of human anatomy? Makes sense? But did you know that we only know about 3% of the overall human body? And we've been studying the body for 6,000 years, and we only know 3% of it. When it comes down to things like biomechanics, anatomical design, and histological things, we know nothing about ourselves. But isn't it amazing? God knows all about us. God knows the very core of who we are. And it makes sense, right, that the designer would know all about those whom he designed, that their creator would know all about his creation. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, it says, this is what the Lord says, he's your redeemer. He formed you in the womb. You've heard it said that God has knitted us together. That way he's created us in our mother's womb. He says, I'm the Lord, the maker of all things who stretches out the heavens and who spreads out the earth by myself. You see, he didn't need anyone to help make you. He made you on his own. He didn't need anybody else to help him with creation. God did creation on his own. God is limitless. And while we may be able to do a thousand things and a million different times, only God can do so much more than we ever asked or imagined. I heard this story some time ago about a scientist that came and approached God and he said, God, we don't need you anymore. God said, oh, you don't, do you? Well, why is that? The scientist said, well, we can clone humans now on our own, so we don't need you to be in the design business. So God said, okay, before I let you go, why don't we have a contest? Why don't we see who can make the first human out of dirt? And whoever makes it first wins. So the scientist said, okay, that's no problem. And they agreed on that. He, scientists reached down and into the dirt and started making a human, and God said, whoa, 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 you stop right there. You use your own dirt first. 
you know, inevitably, we are going to know more about this earth. Inevitably, science and technology and the discovery of our human bodies, we're just going to know more and more and more. And our libraries are going to get more and more full. And our hard drives are going to get more expansive about all the knowledge that we can know. But did you know that if we filled up every library and used every piece of paper and every gigabyte that was ever given to us, we would never know what God knows. He is limitless. And as much as we know about the earth and as much as we'll know one day about the cosmos and and about science, we'll never be able to know fully what God knows. Friends, the resurrection means that God is limitless. You see, Jesus walked up to a temple on the back of a donkey on the triumphal entry and he saw that God's house was in disarray. It was turned into a marketplace, into like a, into like a flea market. And, and Jesus was so upset by this because his house was supposed to be a house of worship. It wasn't supposed to be Walmart. And so he flips over tables and he chases out the money changers and Jesus says, what are you going to do about it? And they say, how do you have this kind of authority to do this kind of thing? Jesus says, I have all the authority in the world because I'm the one who put this world together. And they said, what are you talking about? And Jesus said, you go ahead and kill me. And in a few days, you're going to do that, but just in three days after my death, I'm going to rise again. They didn't take him at his word. They didn't understand it. And five days later, they nailed him to a cross. And Jesus, Jesus had already said, look, no one takes my life from me. I give my life up willingly. I have the power to give it up. I have the power to receive it back again, just as my Father commanded me. You know, that's Jesus' talk for saying, there ain't a force in this world that could have kept me in that grave. There's no force in this world that could have kept me in the grave. You know, we've never seen a military might like the military might of Rome. And Rome is the one that executed him. And Rome is the one that put the tomb in front of him and placed a Roman seal on it and placed 24-hour guards outside of that tomb. And Jesus probably just laughed and said, you think that's going to keep me in death? I'm limitless. I can break out of this thing anytime I want to. And Romans chapter 4, verse 21 says, God had power to do what he promised. God had power to do what he promised. Friends, God is limitless in his power. He can do anything he wants to do. Nothing in this world can subdue his power. It's limitless. In the resurrection, life over death proves that. Well, here's another thing that the resurrection means to us. It means that God is faithful. In the book of Mark, chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus says of himself before his execution, he says, they'll mock me, they'll spit on me, they'll flog me, and then three days later I'll rise from the dead. Did you know that the cross was not a surprise for Jesus? I mean, this was his intention all along. This is why he was born in Bethlehem, so that he could make his way to Jerusalem, so that the Romans would put him to death, so that he could rise again. The cross was no surprise for him. He had that on his calendar, his death. And when you think about it, I mean, the Easter story could have some humor in it. Think about the poor Roman soldier that made his living as an executioner. I mean, this guy knew how to kill people till their blood was gone. And he's just driven a spear through Jesus' side. And he had heard Jesus say, it is finished and breathed his last. He had watched Joseph of Arimathea place Jesus into the tomb after being bound tight in burial garments. 
He had watched the stone be put in front of the tomb. He had watched Roman guards stand their, their ground to make sure that the body would never be stolen or taken. And then, <laughs> three days later, that Roman soldier that just put Jesus to dead knew he was dead as a doornail. Here's that that corpse is now walking around in bodily form. The same Jesus who he just killed is now walking the streets of Jerusalem. How do you think that guy felt? The angel said these words to those that showed up at the empty tomb in the morning. He said, don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus. Now notice what the angel says, who was crucified. The whole world knew it. He's not here. He's risen. Then notice what the angel says. Just as he said. You know, the resurrection means that we have a faithful God. God said he was coming back in three days. And he burst forth out of the grave in three days. We have a God whom we can take at his word. A God who says, you come to me and I won't push you away. We have a God who says, you are baptized and you believe and you'll be saved. We can take him at his word. We don't have a God that's backtracked upon his promises. We have a God that's been faithful on every account. We have a God who said he is Lord and he proved he is Lord. We have a God who said he is Savior and demonstrated him as Savior. We had a God who says, we have a God who says, I will return from the dead in three days. And friends, the resurrection means he's faithful. He returned from the dead in three days. Well, the resurrection also means I can be forgiven. That's pretty good news, isn't it? Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 11, says that we should count ourselves dead to sin, but we should consider ourselves alive in Jesus Christ. When you're forgiven, you can count yourselves dead to sin. You're no longer a sinner under definition. You are now being saved by Jesus Christ. Have you ever been halfway through a project and then you've thought, I want to start over again? Maybe you've done that with a house. You've built a house, you put all sorts of money into it, the foundation's been laid. You see the, the two-by-fours going up, and you think, oh, no, we should have done this differently. No going back now, though. Too much money's been involved in it. Too much has been committed to it, so you just say, we're going to have to live with it. Or maybe you've been in a relationship, and that relationship now of your past is haunting a relationship of the present, and you just say, I wish I could have done that whole past differently because it's harming my present i wish i would have never have had my drinking binge in college i wish i would have never have given my virginity up in high school i just started on the wrong foot i wish i could do things all over again and we have all this guilt and we carry this baggage of emotion that goes along with it and we feel like we're trapped and so many of us we are pushed back from moving ahead because of things that have happened so long ago. Maybe it's true for you that your past is holding you back from your present and, and keeping you away from the future. You just can't break away from something that was done or a regret of your past experience. And you say, there's just nothing I can do to move forward. But the resurrection means that I can be forgiven. It goes even beyond that because Jesus has told us that not just you can be forgiven, that you can have new life in Jesus. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, here's what it says. It says, think of it. I mean, think of it. All your sins forgiven. 
your slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to the cross. I mean, this is the do-over passage of Scripture. This is the mulligan passage. You hit a wrong shot, Jesus said, I'll give you another shot. This is a completely new, clean slate to begin with. Jesus doesn't fix you. Jesus gives you new life. You become a new creation. Someone said this is God's pardon program. Someone said that Jesus was hung up for your hang-ups. Some of you think that Jesus just came to rub it in about righteousness. No, 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 no. The cross tells us Jesus came to rub it out, your sin. Jesus came so that we could be forgiven. And I know some of you here today, you know every single thing that you've done wrong. And some of you hold yourself against it. And you won't let yourself move forward. But the good news of the resurrection is that when you come to Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. Jesus is not holding it against you. Here's what he said. God did not send his son into this world to condemn you. God sent his son into this world to do what? Let's read it together. To save you. To save us. You see, you had thought or you've been preached to or maybe someone has told you or because of your sin, Satan has led you to believe that God is out there to press his thumb against you and you've got to stay in the, in the present circumstances of your life and Jesus says, no, that's not the case. I didn't come to condemn you and to rub it in. I came to rub it out and to forgive you and to save you. You see, the resurrection means that I and you can be forgiven. The resurrection also means that I can rise above my problems. Now notice I didn't say, can get us out of our troubles. Jesus didn't come to get us out of our troubles. But we can have a new perspective on life. We can love our spouse better when we introduce Christ into our world. We can be a better parent to our children when we allow Christ's love to infiltrate us and re receive some of the patience that only God can give in stressful situations. No, you'll still be stuck in your past or in your problems, but you will not you will not be bound to your problems. You'll be able to rise above them because of what Christ did by breaking out of the tomb. I think that's good news for some of you because you came crawling in here today. I mean, you're like on your last ounce of energy. You're in your last breath spiritually. You're about ready to just say to God, okay, enough. You weren't there when my finances went belly up. You weren't there when my marriage took a nosedive. You weren't there when my kids went haywire. Friends, God, like we said last week, is not here to fix you. God is here to save you and to redeem you. And when you are redeemed, you can rise above your problems. You know, Scripture says in Ephesians 1, 19 through 20, it says, I want you to know about the great and mighty power that God has for us followers. It's the same wonderful power, catch this, that he used when Christ raised from the dead and let him sit at the right hand of heaven. Do you see what the Bible tells us? That if you come to Jesus, you've been given the power that rose Christ from the dead. You're not given some kind of lower power. You're not given some kind of halfway charged battery. You're given the power of Jesus Christ that raised him from the dead. And that same power can raise you above your problems. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, a paraphrase of this verse says, Whatever I have, Wherever I am, I can make it through anyone. I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. Now, we know it like this. I can do everything through Christ 
who strengthens me. Friends, they did not say that you can do everything through positive thinking. Or you can do everything based on your intellect. Or you can do everything because you've got a per- good personality. Or you can do everything because you can just psych yourself up in the morning and say, bring on the day. That's not going to get you above your problems. No, it says, I can do everything through whom? Christ, who gives me the strength. Someone said, God, there's nothing going to happen today that you and I can't handle together. And that's the mindset of the Christian. There's nothing today that God and I can't handle together. I can rise above my problems because God has given me the power, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Okay, here's the last thing I want to share with you about the resurrection and what it means to us. It means that we can stop worrying about our future. Okay, well, don't take that the wrong way, okay? You still need to have college plans. You still need to save for retirement. But we don't have to worry about the inevitable. I saw a commercial not too long ago, and uh, it was a commercial for life insurance. The guy comes walking onto the set, and it's dreary, and there's some real somber music to it, and his face is long, and he begins to explain to me that I need to take care of my family. Here's how he puts it in case the unthinkable would ever happen to me. Now, I assume by unthinkable, he means in case I die. Last time I remember, death is not unthinkable. It's inevitable. I mean, what kind of society says that death is unthinkable when there's so much certainty behind it? Do you know anybody that came back from the dead besides Jesus? You know, the Bible tells us we're not given a certain amount of time on earth. I mean, we just kind of expect it because we know the life expectancy is like 72.3 years and we, we just say, well, I'm given at least that, right? No, there's no assurance in it. 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, yeah, that, that's, you're blessed with time right there. But not everybody's given the same amount of time and yet we don't like to think about the inevitable that's to come. But the Bible says you start getting your life in order now and God's going to save you. And you won't have to worry about the inevitable. You can start thinking about the unthinkable because it's not going to burden your life. Now, I know some of us in this room who are believers, we say, but I don't want to die because I don't, like, don't want to have to go through the pain associated. I don't want to have to go through the pain associated with death sometimes. But I don't mind death. Friends, we have to remember this is just the first inch of the yardstick of eternity. Friends, what we're living in right now is just preschool compared to moving up to the upper grades of heaven. There's so much more left to this world. So let's not just think that there is the here and now. Let's get ourselves ready for the inevitable and not have to worry about the future and what's going to take place after the body decays and fails us and we leave our last breath behind here. You know how you do that. You know how you make yourself ready. Jesus says, anyone I call friend, will have security in their faith. That is intriguing to me, that Jesus says that we're friends of his. Because it tells me exactly what Jesus is looking for in his followers. Because we've really messed it up. We have been led to believe that a good follower never misses a church service. I believe a a good follower is going to want to go to church and worship. 
and be a part of the fellowship. But we've been led to believe you miss one, whoo, you're in jeopardy. We've been led to believe that we've got to do some things for salvation. I mean, if we want to get God on our good side, we better do some good things. But I don't find that in the scripture. I find that when we've been infected by Christ, we have a desire to do good things, but that good things lead to salvation? I don't see it. Here's what Jesus says. John 17, verse 13. And in this way to have eternal life, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one who sent to earth. You know, Jesus says, I don't want to have a religion with you. I want to have a relationship with you. I don't just want you to go through the motions of your faith. I want to be partnering in the faith with you. I want you to have complete dependency on me as your Savior. I am the only one who can save. Okay, if you've been in church very long, you've heard this story. One of the greatest tightrope walkers who has probably ever lived is a guy by the name of Charles Blondine. He would really put on a show. But one time he had a stunt that he did over Niagara Falls, 160 feet up in the air, a two-mile walk across from side to side. This guy was outrageous, and to draw a crowd, he would get in a sack, and he would walk across the tightrope. He would blindfold himself and walk across the tightrope. As that picture points out there, he made a makeshift stove and cooked an egg on it in the middle of Niagara Falls on a tightrope, sat down and ate the omelet and got up and picked the stove up to the other side. He would often put his manager on the back and walk the tightrope. He would push a wheelbarrow full of bricks as his greatest feat across the tightrope and then bring it back again. And then one day, Maybe the crowds were dwindling. I don't know. But being the showman that he was, he wanted to, to make it extra spectacular that day. In the empty whirlpool with the bricks dumped out, he looked at the crowd and he says, now any of you want to go across with me? It's silence. But you know, the crowd started to pick up on that. And they thought, ooh, this could be a real show here. Maybe not just Blondine might fall into the water. Maybe two people will. And then we'll have really something to talk about. So the enthusiasm picked up and everyone's getting excited about it and there's a buzz. And he says, anyone that wants to ride in this wheelbarrow and have me push him across, you just form a single file line right here. Nobody showed up. Then maybe one guy, we don't know his name, maybe down on his luck, not sure where he was in life. He steps forward and he gets into the wheelbarrow. Legend have it that he pushed that man across, spun around on the other side, and came back. And he did it with confidence. Not like his other stunts where he would wiggle and act like he was falling down. He made it so assured that there was not going to be danger into the falls. I think of us today, and I think of ourselves, and I wonder... How many of you in this crowd say, I believe in God? I believe that God is limitless. I believe that we have the power to rise above our problems because of the resurrection. I believe that we're forgiven. I believe these things. But you know what? It's easy to believe when you're standing on the shore, isn't it? It's easy to believe 
when you haven't gotten into the wheelbarrow and said, okay, God, all this is up to you now. All this is out of my control. It's on your strength. It's on your power. It's on your might. It's on your way. It's you set the course. I guess I'll just leave my life into your hands. Friends, you know what the resurrection means? It means that when we give our life over to Jesus Christ, that we too can find life. Life even though there's death. That we don't have to be haunted by our past. The grave clothes of our previous life can be removed and we can now move forward unrestricted by the problems of our life. It means what Jesus proclaimed. That if you come to the Father through Jesus, then you'll have eternal life. At the end of the book of Mark, Jesus has arose from the dead and everyone's excited. Time has moved on. 40 days are up and now he's got to ascend into heaven. Jesus departs with these words. He says, if you believe in me, and you're baptized, you will be saved. And he's asking us this morning, who of you wants to climb in this wheelbarrow? Who of you wants me to push you through the narrow path above the problems of this world and the treachery that it contains so I might save you? so you can get to the other side. If you do, then form a line, a single file line, and there'll be people here to receive you so that you too can believe in Christ and be baptized into Jesus.